Hello friends, patrons, it's Alpha Bunga Bunga. The date is Sunday the 20th of September. This is Alex Hochley in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'm about to introduce Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who, who are in the UK. And they're going to be very enthusiastic and say hi very nicely. Hi, guys. Introduce. This is like a jointly produced podcast, Alex. So I, but, I'm, but I'm welcoming you in. We're not one of your guests to be introduced. No, I, I'm welcoming you in. I'm. This is, you know, I'm, mm. I'm giving you the floor. I'm, I'm still wait, waiting for my introduction. I said, um, I, said <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be presented to the listeners. Yeah. And, and now present, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, good. Really, really glad to be on the podcast today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's good when we have like such kind of enthusiastic guests who are grateful to be showcased on the podcast. Yeah. So just, what do you have to show for us today? Just, hap- us. just happy to be involved just happy to be here to be mm. you know to be recording with with pals it's you know it's a great yeah. way to spend a sunday get those participation prizes um <laughs> we uh you guys see i guess that uh some wag yeah. on twitter commented that america has lost it's uh, a great progressive ayatollah r.i.p <laughs> r.i.p rgb yeah r.i.p rbg yeah, justices justices don't go to to heaven; they just go to a higher court. So that's <laughs> pretty lame, but quite funny. That, yeah, that's kind of bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I kind of position on this is that supreme courts are bad, but I guess regular courts are a necessary evil. Um, People's yeah. courts, re- sure revolutionary tribunals. Um, <laughs> nice. I, I don't know if you saw the video of of somebody driving, um, and then shouting quite loudly at the camera that they were sad that RGB had died. Um, it seems, yeah, it seems like I think for a certain sort of liberal, it's just another thing that's happening in 2020. So it's, uh, I mean, well, shouldn't have load bearing 80, 87 year olds in your political system, arguably. Well, that's why the Ayatollah comparison was so funny, not to mention the kind of the fetishistic reverence for the U S constitution that, um, leads them to leads them to political change being vested on um, the interpretations divinations of the supreme court justices so i mean knowing jones the guardian writer did a tweet saying that perhaps the whole fate of the planet i'm not i'm not um i'm not uh, exaggerating he said that perhaps the whole fate of the planet now depended on um what's just happened on the fact that um ginsburg died so there's no um, there's no shortage of um, hot takes on the death of a very elderly, very very, very elderly hot, woman. very globally warmed takes. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If people care so much about global warming, they should stop with all the hot takes. I mean, I, I also realise I'm I, I, I said RGB I think rather than RBG. Red, green, blue. But yeah, exactly. All the colours are now no longer visible. <laughs> There's no colour left in life after she's gone. Yeah, just, <laughs> um, just black and white I actually now. retweeted some uh, person who literally is a, you know, that screaming, crying, liberal Wojak figure, you know, that kind of, ah, like tears streaming down the face, red eyes kind of Wojak meme no, figure. No, what? Do that again? I didn't nah, get it. You know what I mean. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> and uh, But like literally a, a, an embodiment of that like screaming you were meant to just stay alive until 2021 you had one job and of course assuming that um somehow there'll be a different president in 2021 which is uh, by no Mm. means a foregone conclusion um anyway let's get let's get cracking this is a three articles uh for new patrons who've recently joined us and aren't familiar with the format here um firstly a very big welcome thank you for joining us uh this is a kind of a show and tell we each bring an article uh we read it and we discuss it simple thing um it's basically just an opportunity a platform for us to talk about uh current affairs um and we're actually going to start well, with th- one thanks i mean alex you just explained the idea of three articles <laughs> like it's just got three articles i mean did it need an explanation yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but it's good. It's good that now people understand what it means. I should expect more from the listener. You're right. Um, We actually had various requests for us to discuss the current Brexit negotiations, the question of state aid and so on. Um, So that's where we're going to start. Philip has brought us an article about, uh, well, just on that very question. So I'll let Phil introduce it. Yeah. So it's an article from The Economist, and um, uh, listeners will find it in the show notes. It's called How State Aid Became a Brexit Deal Breaker. 
And the reason, um, I mean, there's a number of different takes on it. The reason this one is interesting, I think, is because it provides being the economist, um, kind of, you know, the Thatcherite uh, in-house magazine for the uh, for liberal capitalists, Boss's magazine, um, Boss's news magazine, it gives a good, not only kind of provides you with the details and the stakes of what's involved, but it also gives the interpretation of a liberal kind of capitalist outlook that's befuddled by the fact that the supposed party of big business, the Tories, is now in the position of effectively defending state aid from the European Union. So let me set it up a bit for our listeners, and particularly for those listeners who asked us to discuss this, because it's um, for those who have not been following the Brexit negotiations, um, it's a bit involved. So state aid is when, obviously, when, as the name suggests, is when the government provides aid to subsidy or um, support public investment of some kind to one of its, um, to a company uh, within its jurisdiction. And this is something that the European Union has um, struggled to suppress uh, quite significantly as part of its integration of a single market. And thus, it's something which um, the Thatcherite Tory party was very, very um, attached to because it was seen as part of the um, building, essentially, of a Thatcherite consensus on the relationship between state and market across the continent with the signing of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. So we're in this paradoxical position now where um, something that was a legacy of the Thatcherite era, perhaps one of the most kind of Thatcherite aspects of the European Union, um, one of its most kind of concrete embodiments, um, and one of the most concrete embodiments of supranational neoliberalism, is now become a sticking point within the Brexit negotiations between the Tory government and the European Union. And the reason being essentially is that the state requires the capacity to be able to support um, various aspects of uh, various aspects of economic life in the UK if there is if they are going to be if they want to invest to the degree that they want to in public investment, if they want to be able to support businesses in left behind regions that tended to go for, um, that tended to vote for Brexit, and simply to have the greater scope for overseeing a national economy, which is precisely what the European Union tries to suppress as part of its integration of a continental sized single market. So I suppose a few things flow from this, which are interesting. The first is the fact, again, that you see this kind of bizarre political realignment that the Tory party is effectively in the midst of um, defending uh, the right of the state to shape a national economy, something which they had struggled against so mightily through the Thatcherite era and beyond. And perhaps there is, you know, perhaps there's a cunning of, perhaps one could argue that there's a cunning of reason there, even if it goes, exercises itself through these um, kind of uh, paradoxical and counterintuitive forms. The other element that's important to note about it is the fact that the Labour Party is now uh, very defensively and as part of it still fighting this insane rearguard action against Brexit, is now seeking to call into question rather than kind of outright support for the government um, in its battle to uh, expand the remit and scope of state aid in its negotiations with the European Union. The Labour Party, the opposition leftist party, has been denouncing it as um, an indication of the government's willingness to break international law um, because the defence of state aid means walking back on some minor elements of the uh, withdrawal agreement that the British government has already signed with the European Union. Needless to say, many of the people making this criticism of the government are the same people who supported the invasion of Iraq. So their reverence for international law should be taken with a degree of um, uh, more than a pinch of salt. And then finally, the last element of it is how it's become, I mean, part of the reason that the Tory government has been forced into this position is linked to Northern Ireland, because under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, um, the Northern Ireland, the six counties that are um, run from Westminster in the north of Ireland, they would have fallen under European Union jurisdiction effectively under the terms of withdrawal agreement. That would also, however, because of the bizarre structure of these negotiations and the withdrawal agreement itself, that would have given scope for the European Union to affect to affect uh, state aid within Britain itself. So not just in Ireland and not just in the British part of Ireland, but in Britain itself. And this is why the government has been 
forced to effectively take on this, you know, undertake these uh, this kind of complex footwork in order to try and wriggle itself out of the agreement that it had previously reached with the European Union in defense of state aid. Um, and I suppose one final thing I'd add, which is that um, there's a tendency, so there's a tendency on the left to have make um, just as much as on the right, on the pro-Brexit right, there was a tendency to fetishize free trade and imagine that Britain is going to become some kind of... Uh, buccaneering global privateer of free trade and that uh, it's going to burst forth into a economy of enormous kind of growth as a result of trade of signing new free trade agreements with Canada and Australia and what have you and obviously that's a complete fantasy the leftist version of that is the idea of um, a kind of new socialist state socialist utopia where the state showers uh, subsidies and support for various industries from on high um, and it's important to not to get trapped in that um, among the left either. State aid is no panacea. Um, and indeed, I'm sure, you know, the opportunities, particularly for this government to subsidize its personal friends um, will be great if it has more capacity for state aid. But what is worth defending is the right of the state, the political right of the state to um, enact public investment in line with the will of the electorate and the voters. And there is clearly a demand for that kind of um, that kind of support, the the kind of government investment in public infrastructure, for instance, in left behind regions that would help to raise living standards, help to raise employment, help to raise wages, help to raise just the conditions of life in general. That I think um, is widely supported by voters, particularly outside of the southeast, and it's that right that is worth defending um, without without getting. Um, uh, misty-eyed mm. about it's, the it's politics of the past. No, it's an, it's an important it's an important principle um, that it, it and it is it is quite strange how the left seems to be tacking against in Britain, Britain tacking against state state aid, tacking against the democratization of the economy and the um, the right of the state on through the state the people to have a say on economic questions of production and distribution. Um, and it's and it is it is quite bizarre in some cases, um, but the justification is yeah as you said just to just to I think essentially repeat one of the points that you were that you made Phil I think it was a very clear presentation is that it's about you know it's a turn to supranationalism and the rules based or law based um, international order and this idea of not breaking international law that's the that's the the British left's position now. Um, that's the most important thing in international relations, and in fact, in industrial policy and all these sorts of things, is you can't you can't go against um, a neoliberal order. So yeah, it's it's a um, quite bizarre <laughs> discussion in which state aid is being rebranded re by some on the left um, that it's about government subsidising business and it's about corruption um, as opposed to the state interfering in or the state looking to control. Uh, markets, which has obviously been a social democratic or socialist um, principle for a long time. So yeah, another another good example of of how Brexit is realigning uh, British politics and throwing all the the old um, alignments and and presuppositions into the bin. So I mean, I have just two, I, I guess, two kind of correctives to things that Phil and, and George have just said. Uh, the first is that I mean, correctives is it? Well, it. <laughs> It's a point, but it's not really an argument, you know. Anyway, I'll, I'll say it. Um, Phil, you introduced the Conservatives as, as the party of big business, but I mean, arguably, they're even more the party of small and medium businesses. And it's precisely those small and medium businesses who are not going to be the ones who are the main winners from state aid, I would imagine. Um, and thus the horror of Thatcherites and The Economist and so on uh, to the Conservative Party's kind of move because it's a move against presumably kind of, you know, support for small and medium businesses and in favor of uh, state aid to kind of quite large ones and, you know, picking winners and so on that, uh, that the kind of free marketeers have have such a horror at. Um, the, uh, the point with regard to what George said, I mean, you said, yeah, the left is turning against the democratization of the economy. Um, but there is no democratization of the economy going on um, post-Brexit um, led by the Tories. I mean, state aid isn't but any in any sense of the word democratization of the economy. Um, so uh, I don't think... Well, that yeah, I mean, it is. It is it, to, rem to re remove the restrictions that state aid rules impose is to increase the 
scope for democratic control of the economy. It increases the scope, but it is not de facto the, in, in any way democratizing the economy. It allows for the democratization of the economy. Well, I think that's, yeah. that's um, important difference. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it, it, certainly, it certainly lays the ground for making the argument that we need greater control over our lives, including over our economic lives. And there's no way to make that argument for the democratization of the economy without overturning um, EU rules on state aid. And yeah. I mean, to be, and this is the economist, I mean, you know, obviously there are elements of um, geopolitical kind of rivalry in this. The economist makes quite clear that it's a genuine threat to the European Union to have a large economy um, off the kind of shore of Europe of the European Union, um, which they don't really have anywhere else. They're, the European Union acts as an imperial kind of, um, an imperial presence with respect to its um, neighboring regions and most of all of its kind of uh, so-called uh, neighborhood areas or whatever they call them in the bureaucratic parlance. Um, and so the idea that the, the British state might select kind of champions or boost parts of its economy through state aid is a genuine threat. But notwithstanding that, I think, you know, I mean, I take your point, Alex. It's not as if um, it's not a, it's not a workers' control of the means of production. Far from it. But it is certainly um, you cannot make the case for greater democratization of the economy without making the case for junking state aid. Yeah, I, I mean, in that no, in, in, and in that sense, it is because if you increase the, the possibility for control, that is a democratizing step. It's not conditional on what's enacted. That's the mistake of Lexit to say that this is only possible. Yeah, it's only right. desirable if it leads to an increased um, enacting of control, the actual removal, of, I mean, and the removal of these rules is in itself a step towards democracy, I would, that's, I that's, would argue. That's what, I was actually working towards that point exactly. It's, oh, so, I mean, well then, no, no, because, point. no, because the point, no, because, Continue, I, please. You per, no, because you portrayed state aid as a democratization of the economy. And I think giving ca subsidies to capitalists is in no way democratic, especially, you know, there's nothing inherently, um, kind of more democratizing about that. Um, but as to, you know, Phil referred to the kind of left, the misguided left wing version of a state socialist utopia once you get Brexit and the kind of Lexiter argument. Um, you know, in many ways, the and this was always the argument made by liberals against the Lexiteers, um, that actually, you know, you can do a whole bunch of stuff with, and the EU doesn't prevent you from doing that. And of course, um, I think we've debated this in the past and the, the lines of that are, are not entirely clear what the EU would do. But I mean, for example, um, the like shocking regional inequalities that you have in the UK, some of the worst in the worst in Western Europe, um, and by some measures, maybe even worse than we have in Italy, um, yeah. is the fact that a lot of that kind of stuff could have been ameliorated within the EU, you know, whether, whether you're in the EU or not. Um, so it's not really an EU question, and and the EU question. No, it is an EU hang, question. Well, it is, but the, it is but the, what I'm, I'm getting, hang on, let me finish. The, the EU question is precisely one about democracy and not about specific economic outcomes. Now, the EU obviously prevents you from pursuing certain, uh, using certain measures to uh, have certain outcomes. For example, uh, state aid. Um, but there's other things that you know the, the EU could, the UK could have undertaken. Uh, kind of other forms of regional redistribution, um, which wouldn't have necessarily fallen foul of e of what the EU does. In fact, many EU countries have uh, maintained much more um, much more equality between different regions than the UK has. I mean, then the UK has fallen, you know, ended up with such a chasm between London and the North that yeah. as a consequence of Thatcherite policies and not because of the EU. There are a few things here, though, so which I think are I'm going to offer as uh, what did you call them correctives to what you've just said, Alex. So, um, firstly, with respect to this question about um, the EU, um, so the you know all of these the thing over uh, ruling through the single market is decided ultimately by the European. Um, uh, I was going to say the European Court, the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, which famously is always rules, almost always rules in favor of um, big business over rights of workers. And it's famously a neoliberal court. Um, and for and the point is that these rules on state aid set a direction of travel. So all the different kind of member states of Europe start in a different place. Um, and they might not have traveled as far down the line as some countries have, such as Britain. Um, but nonetheless, it sets a direction of travel and that's where they're all headed. And there is very little capacity to reverse it once you're locked into that system without risking all sorts of political and legal um, difficulties. So it is designed to, it is certainly designed to impede um, the public's capacity to reshape national economies. 
um, irrespective of uh, where those particular countries sit on in terms of the balance between state and market. So, and the other thing I think which is important is the, you know, when we say that, um, uh, you know, it's the British state rather than the European Union, it's uh, at some level, it doesn't really matter because the British state has been so deeply enmeshed in the European Union that this is the form that um, British neoliberalism has taken is through um, integration in the European Union. Um, it is a mem or was, I mean, in many ways, it still is a member state of the European Union. The civil service is organized around um, directives from Brussels. It has very great difficulty adapting to the idea that it has to um, respond um, more kind of immediately to the demands of Westminster and the demands of a more of an electorate that is more demanding as well since 2016. So, you know, I mean, you don't want to, I don't think getting into this game of like uh, how far it's the European Union and how far is the British government to some extent is moot. I just want to say something about the Tory party um, and small businesses, which you mentioned earlier, Alex. I think I think the Tory party is the party of big business and it always has been. You know, they maintain the kind of the nonsense about um, entrepreneurialism and defense of small business as a way of legitimating um, themselves, speaking for the ordinary guy. Um, they kind of make um, symbolic tokenistic concessions to the petty bourgeoisie. Um, and they certainly, you know, they certainly flatter them and pander to them in all sorts of ways. But, um, you know, it's the party of high finance and the banks mm. has been for a long time. Yeah, though, one I, or two I, big corporations. I, I think the, the contrast, though, with um, labor, for example, you know, labor has been also the party of big business, whether in its kind of uh, pre-Thatcherite, like pre-Thatcher uh, incarnation as kind of state state socialist and it would you know do deals with big business and big biz and and or indeed in its new labor variant where it also had a lot of big business support you know big business goes where it needs to um whereas i think the tory party has traditionally been more the party in terms of its social base the party of small medium businessmen um who identify with it much more than they ever would with labor and i think that that's what i'm kind of drawing attention to rather than Mm. um, yeah no fair enough yeah, I think it was it was kind of interesting in the the referendum to see that to see the the, the split within the Tory party um, on precisely on Brexit on the different interests that the different um, I guess you would say the different layers of of Tory support finance big business um, and other kind of smaller more regional um, business yeah I mean I guess the one one point that I would just make on how state aid rules work. Is they can they they have a chill, a chilling effect whereby, for example, if the you know the British government previously had wanted to produce textbooks, for example, for you know for the whole of um, for for British secondary schools, um, then the danger would be that there could be a legal challenge from publishers, and they would have pretty good grounds to do so on the basis that that would be um, a violation of state aid rules because you'd have the the government essentially corrupting the market. I mean that's probably not the terms they would put it in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's it has a it has a knock on effect um, in terms of the 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 possibility and the the likelihood in in many cases of of legal challenges to um, I don't think you'd call that industrial policy, but to um, to kind of state intervention in the market. No, fair enough. Point taken. I think I would only have one more comment on this, um, which relates to Phil's point about Europeanization and how it penetrates into the state itself, um, into nation states, that these aren't kind of separate bodies. That um, One is that I think that obviously proves the point that Brexit is Brexit is or has to be or you know should be a process and a first step rather than a fait accompli or or a, rather a fait to be accompli um, that once you're you know de facto out of the EU then um, you're then um, you're then free or that progress has been achieved I think that you know there's still a, a kind of democratizing process that has to happen there um, which I think puts uh, left-wing, you know, uh, pro-democracy Brexiteers in a difficult situation. Uh, I mean, in terms of having to prove that, um, in, in rather in terms of having to carry on the struggle, as it were, um, once legal Brexit has been achieved. Um, the other thing is just that um, about the kind of EU freezing in place, I guess, the relative competitive positions of nations and businesses within that. I think I take that point that it kind of... Um, that you know already competitive businesses once you've once you're frozen especially into the euro then if you're uh, in a good position then you're going to maintain that and if you haven't been then it's very hard to 
uh, turn the tide, I guess, um, by using the state to, you know, protect infant industries or uh, whatever whatever other uh, state means you might have to um, to try to to try to make a, a kind of business more competitive. Um, and that that I think I guess is is the real point here. I mean, clarify, you know, or correct me if I'm wrong, but um, what you have is with the UK becoming a competitor to the EU. Um, is that you have then state competition rather than a market-based competition where British businesses compete with German businesses and so on. But precisely that the problem with that vision of um, a European-wide market with all these businesses competing is that it, it um, seals in place the kind of um, landscape that was, or rather the kind of competitive hierarchy that was in place beforehand. So if you were uh, a German exporter and you were already had exported high-value goods and you were quite competitive, within certainly within the euro, that plate, your situation there is going to be held in place because of the euro. Um, so it, it, what I guess it most does is prevent any kind of challenge to the status quo ante. Is that right? It is. I mean, it's obviously quite the history of of the eurozone and the way that it's particularly advantaged German industrial export capital is a, is a complex um, and quite, kind of interesting story. It's in Kostas Lapovitsas's book on this. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the. I guess my question would be, what's what sort of what what's the political implication of 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 what you're saying here? That the EU freezes. That the EU is, is an impediment to any kind of challenge to the status quo ante. So if the UK wanted to um, have more competitive businesses, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that I care one way or the other about UK having competitive business. In fact, I don't care at all about the UK having competitive businesses. But I mean, if it wanted to do that, then the British state outside of the EU could undertake actions to try to change that. Whereas once you're locked into the system, um, it's there, there isn't any kind of non, non purely economic means of, of doing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's going to be the, the, probably the justification and the, and the narrative that, that the Tories would be much more comfortable with. They won't want to talk about democratizing the economy. I wouldn't think it's more about, you know, picking winners, making British business more, um, more competitive, um, th- those things that you don't care about, but us, us Brits might care uh, more or less passionately about. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was, I thought, yeah, I, I mean, thought you're a socialist. Why do you care about no, that's, British businesses being? Uh, it's you know, it gives me a sense of of, Nash, of uh, pride and, and and a warm feeling that that, that businesses Alex, in this country are more more competitive. You know, he is like he's a socialist with national pride, or a national socialist, if you will. He's part of the Red Brown Alliance, Mr. Um, <laughs> Asserite. Yeah. It's good. It's good that this is a, a Patreon episode, so um, it doesn't go any further than that. Um, keep it under your hats, listeners. Um, anyway, uh, shall we move on? I've been, I've been exposed. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, no. I mean, look. I mean, this. This, of course, is the the political prize that's still up for grabs. Um, is like, and you said earlier, you know, left left Brexit have to continue the struggle, and that's absolutely true. It's absolutely a case that. You know, Brexit is a is the beginning of a democratization of society potentially, but it's a, it's potentially you know you need a force to to drive that forward, and that's obviously um, to less to greater or lesser extent what we're lacking at the moment. Yep, very good. Uh, shall we move on to the next piece? Um, we are discussing yeah. uh, lockdowns and the pandemic. Um, so this is my piece, uh, or the piece that I'm introducing. Uh, it's in the Financial Times. It's by Wolfgang Munchau. Um, Sweden's COVID-19 experiment holds a worldwide warning. Um, so I, the main points made in here is, first of all, um, you can't compare infection rates across countries. You can't reduce COVID or the success of a country dealing with COVID down to one figure, whether that be death rates, infection rates, or so on. Um, and comparing policy responses across borders um, is impossible. I mean, it, it, there are just too many variables uh, to really say that such and such country has been a success and such a country hasn't, and that therefore, whatever X country did should be followed by everyone else. Um, it's just too early, there's too many variables, and we should take a position of agnosticism. Um, and I think, you know, and he makes this point with regard to, to Sweden, I, I think, actually, before I, before I describe the article any further, I think we've all seen people either using the Sweden example as a Sweden case, as an example, to say lockdown is terrible. Um, you see, Sweden's gotten away with it, and that's all fine. And people saying, um, 
look at Sweden, they've had so many deaths, they've had way more deaths than their neighbors. That's what you do if you don't do lockdown. Um, and I think they're lo- the Munchau's main point here is that we should avoid that sort of cherry picking um, and that any kind of attempt to defend your preferred uh, option based on the success or otherwise of one country or another um, will be um, kind of not really founded on anything solid. It'll be based, it'll just be purely subjective. And I think that's right. I think we, there's just too many unknowns at this stage still um, and we should be agnostic. This, But the other, and the second point um, is that... Um, Well, I'm going to quote directly from it. The latest Swedish numbers do not prove or disprove anything. But before policymakers order something as extreme as another lockdown, they should have had incontrovertible statistical evidence, not just a bunch of numbers that feed their uh, their confirmation bias. Um, and so I think that's that's the point. What, what we There's a lot that we don't know. But what we do know is that the lockdowns are very extreme and that their consequences are very obvious um, and very negatively obvious. Um, and I think that would more or less sum up my position um, on this, which is be agnostic about various policy options. Um, but we should be critical about op- options that have been taken that have been very obviously negative. Um, I think that it's also worth highlighting an interview with uh, Tegnell, the uh, head Swedish epidemi- epidemiologist, who's a, a hate or love figure, depending on which way you look at things with regard to lockdown and the pandemic. Um, but he there em- emphasizes a holistic public health approach. He says that Sweden's approach um, was predicated on trying to keep its healthcare system working, but also looking at public health in the broadest sense, rather than just trying to minimize, narrowly minimize COVID-19 deaths. And I think that's where you get a lot of problem. Um, and what kind of puts the lockdown in the worst light is when you when you just looking in terms of health, in terms of public health, that various other public health indicators are worse because of lockdown. And um, I think that's, that's a problem that you get where you have... Um, where you start focusing on the individual rather than uh, the population as a whole. And if you start thinking we need to reduce every single possible COVID death to a minimum, uh, ignoring all other um, health factors as well as other social factors, um, then uh, I think you've kind of greatly amplified the the, the threat of COVID. Um, so I think that the Swedish case, you know, like you could look into the details of it and say that, Well, they haven't done a lockdown and their uh, figures of deaths, yes, have been higher than uh, comparable countries. But at the same time, you can't compare across countries because a lot of what happened is that Sweden failed to uh, protect its care homes. And in fact, their toll model was based on protecting care homes and the vulnerable, and they kind of failed to do that. Um, so there's a, so b- before you go in swinging, going, well, Sweden's model proves such and such, I think there's so much granularity and so many details to look at that we should be fairly agnostic as as to um, as to kind of our preferred approach. No, I think I mean the the, um, the interview that you that you mentioned, yeah, it was it was um, I think yeah, it was a good interview. I think that was in the FT as well. He's probably been interviewed in various places, but at this podcast, we like to stick to the the FT, the left wing. The only left wing paper out there um but yeah i mean i think there's there's a number of really sort of i think you know good good points in in the article and i think there's def is definitely the case that when you have and this is all you know across so many spheres of life when you have one statistic for one measure one kind of out, outcome um which becomes a goal e.g reducing or minimizing or even making zero the number of covid deaths or, or new cases then It, it ceases to have any validity. I mean, there's there's stories, and you can understand this about, for example, in the UK, care homes recoding um, deaths to make them COVID-related because there's a financial incentive to do this. It also, of course, uh, can be self-undermining because there are other indicators, as you said, the, you know, the serious public health consequences of lockdowns, the you know mental health peak that we've probably got coming across a number of different societies so i think it's it's definitely um a corrective to say you know it's it's the the science doesn't the science won't save you it's a political decision you know as it always is what you want to do and so the i think linking the idea that you can't draw conclusions to a kind of politicization making this not just a health crisis and an economic crisis through employment but also a political crisis i.e., saying like what's what's the political decision going to be you can't just lean on the science um i think that's a that's a useful 
that's like a, a good position to take at this point in time. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'd agree with. Um, I'd agree. I think with pretty much everything that you guys have both said. I would. No, dad, no correctives. You're gonna. You're gonna. You've no, got to issue at least I one. Leave, I leave correctives to Alex. I. Um, I don't issue correctives. But you did correct um, his correctives. So maybe. <laughs> um, the. I suppose the. I mean. The other thing I would add, I guess, is the in, the initial kind of the hook or the initial kind of impetus for Munchair's article is the fact that um, there seems to be no second wave for now of uh, COVID infections in Sweden, whereas many European countries that went into lockdown, including its neighbouring countries, or had more restrictive policies than Sweden, are seeing surging rates of infection. Um, and Munchair is rightly saying, like, you know, this looks positive for Sweden and the Swedish model. Um, but again, you don't want to draw um, too many, um, too much, uh, too many inferences from from these models. And I, I think that's right. Um, I suppose the implication of this kind of agnosticism is to be tentative about any kind of long term uh, kind of uh, conclusions that we might draw about the spread of the virus, about the about mortality associated with the virus. There was another article, I mean, just recently in the British press that they they now suspect, apparently, with good reason, that maybe um, COVID deaths have been exaggerated in the UK by 30%. COVID was present, but not responsible for death in 30 cases, in 30% of the cases which had previously been attributed to COVID. I imagine there'll be similar, perhaps, um, you know, similar uh, redrawing of of COVID casualties in different places in the wake of the pandemic. So we can only be tentative. And I think that means that also what he's missing, I guess, and maybe here's the corrective, is that he's kind of, um, he's appealing to rationality while, dis while not understanding how deeply entrenched the politics of fear is um, in Western states and how deeply entrenched. It's not simply kind of a series of policy errors that could be by governments that could be, uh, or you know, a few kind of excesses that could be subject to um, everyone becoming a bit, more, um, a bit more agnostic or tentative about particular epidemiological models or data. Um, the, this is the way governments function at the moment. Um, they find it extraordinarily difficult to mobilize or rally their populations. They find it easier to issue edicts about control, to um, initiate states of emergency, to demobilize the population effectively, and great kind of theatrical displays of state power um, and um, state control. Which is, rel which is often very ineffective. I mean, I think which, the, which is why can... I said theater. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So theatrical because ineffective. Theater can be effective. So I agree with Alex. Um, I think you're um, missing the point. So anyway, but just one more thing on the on this is there are two things though I would maybe kind of push back against Minkow on in terms of what we can safely say. I would say, I mean, so you know, I'd say we can be confident. It seems even even you know not even a year into this into the pandemic of a new of a new coronavirus that it the mortality is among the elderly and the vulnerable. And population density seems to be a significant factor in its um, in the rapidity of its spread. Um, so I think those two things I'd say we could be, you know, um, not agnostic about. I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about trust because actually this is a, a sort of um, persistent thread throughout the the whole discussion, or rather, it should be, and maybe isn't often enough. Um, in societies like Sweden, where there actually is fairly high trust in in government, and certainly in, in relative terms. Um, it means that you can have <clears throat> far more voluntary measures um, and trust that there'll be a large degree of adherence to them. Where there isn't such a high degree of trust, such as you know in the UK or in the US, um, you you ne might need more uh, heavy-handed approach from government or uh, perhaps more clear communication. I, it, it's unclear how you actually resolve that. So uh, in places where you have low trust, maybe lockdowns work better. The problem with the lockdown is that it uh, paradoxically increases mistrust, um, and you get the sense that the that the government is being heavy-handed, uh, and so you get the kind of you know morons bleeding about five G and uh, or or about you know having to wear a mask is being muzzled and all this kind of uh, crazy conspiratorial and ultimately it is of, being muzzled. ultimately it's childish not conspiratorial. Well, huh? 
it is being it is being muzzled it's not being conspiratorial no it, it's not being muzzled it's uh it's like a, it's a fairly low cost uh low extremely low intervention public health measure uh at a time when we know very little about the uh about the long-term consequences of the disease so yeah but okay I think, so hang on let me let me finish let me finish no let me finish um so so you get that you get this you get it locked you down. just said about being Lock- agnostic but let me finish I'm, I'm because i'm describing the politics of it not the not the um anyway so the so lockdown increases mistrust uh, and you have to have lockdown in, in places where you have lower trust uh that mistrust then um leads to all these kind of crazy conspiracy theories and then you get in turn liberal technocrats commanding people saying no you must do this you must behave uh and then you get this cycle of culture war which you see probably most clearly of all in the u.s but it, uh, some elements of it have been seen everywhere you've had kind of far-right protests in germany which have uh wielded the same sort of uh, claims about, you know, 5G or whatever other kind of stuff. Um, so I guess the, the the kind of worst thing about lockdown is that you get neither kind of a rational administration of things, um, as Munchau sort of wants, nor a real representation of majority interests, because you don't really get a, a, a sensible challenge to lockdowns and uh, holding governments to account for things that they actually didn't do, which they could have done better, for example, rolling out more testing, tracking and tracing and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and instead, you get this absurd culture war between nutty conspiracy theorists and liberal authoritarian technocrats. Um, and I think that's a really bad outcome. So I would say... Um Precisely for what you've been saying, Alex, agnosticism about masks. Also, I would also um, think that applies to masks. And while you know, obviously, wearing a mask isn't the same as a lockdown um, or a state of emergency, and the latter is much worse than being mandated to wear a mask. I wouldn't also dismiss wearing the government enforcement of wearing a mask as something trivial um, and trivial and uh, kind of you know uh, without as if it has no cost. And it's not just that it's an inconvenience or the fact, I don't know that it is trivial because um, the idea that you go out into a world where um, people are, you know, um, kind of uh, covering up their faces and um, it generally makes communication more difficult and everyone is expected to, if you know, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a symbolic signaling of the fact that everyone is a mutual threat to each other. Uh, but this I cultural, I, I don't buy, I mean, this cultural reading, culturalist reading, the reason mask the culture wearing is, is completely, let me, is completely let me finish, the point let me when finish, you're in the middle of a let pandemic. Me let me finish, because I think it is valid, precisely because, as you said, being agnostic about the data and the epidemiology of all this is merited at this particular point. So, like I said, I think obviously lockdown and state of emergencies are infinitely worse than mandates to wear a mask. But at the same time, I wouldn't trivia make it seem as if um, wearing a mask is nothing, and it's uh, you know something that can be take, taken upon lightly because mm. it comes without a cost. I don't agree with that. So just just two quick points on 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 this. The first is that in terms of agnosticism, I mean I don't know what to think. <laughs> Sorry, um, and there's just return to the. I thought it was quite good. Yeah, and I guess the more substantive point to return it to the article a, a little bit is that in looking to Sweden there's an interesting parallel with the late 1950s British New Left who were who were very interested or there was a discussion around Sweden as this kind of um, potential model social democratic model um, but it was like okay Sweden's really good it's got all this high standard of living but there's loads of suicides so it's like Sweden is yet again this this mixed picture that um, people are looking towards for some some potential guidance. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, just the final point. I mean, I think we don't know how long the vaccine will be. And there's some even estimation that it might be t- three years until it uh, is fully rolled out around the world. So we need to find a way to live with COVID. Um, and therefore, lockdowns are obviously not a solution. Lockdowns maybe were a reasonable last ditch solution to avoid health services being overwhelmed right at the kind of initial peak. But uh, I think the kind of selective application of lockdowns here and there is just not feasible. Um, it's not a feasible way to run society to people, for people to run businesses and or anything else. So I think that's, we're just going to have to learn to live with it. Um, at the same time, there's many things that we don't know. We, that we don't know if there is herd immunity. There's some suggestion that people can recatch COVID, although on the second time, it seems to be less 
serious than the first time round. Um, but of course, if you were put on a ventilator the first time round and, and survived, then um, what's a step down from being on a ventilator? Still a very severe um, flu. Uh, and secondly, we don't know the long-term effects of it. I, there's people who were even asymptomatic who had serious uh, damage to their heart, to other organs, and so on. There's just a lot that we don't know, and it potentially is a very, very bad uh, disease to catch, even if you didn't suffer particularly badly from the flu that you got from it. Um, with all that in mind, I think, you know, yes, we should be agnostic, but, um, you know, to the extent that we think masks might work to prevent its spread, I think it's worth being precautionary there. Not that it's no risk, uh, masks are ex- extremely annoying to wear, but in the context of a pandemic, um, I think it's a fairly, again, relatively low cost kind of measure um, to take, especially if we are going to have to live with the live with this thing for a long time. Lockdown and the long-term consequences, again, I mean, you know, it's essentially anecdotal stories are emerging in the midst of millions and millions and millions of people who've had COVID and recovered. So again, you know, I think we have to be agnostic about it. And it might be um, that the people who have long-term consequences might be, um, there might be, uh, you know, there might be something that they have, um, some kind of propensity for um, uh, the COVID, which is, uh, you know, kind of exacerbating other health conditions or whatever it might be. So again, I think we have to be agnostic. One thing I think that is good, perhaps, is um, that there has been more um, among kind of certain supporters of the lockdown left, there's been more scepticism towards the lockdown. And recently there was a debate in Jacobin where um, they had somebody, uh, a medic of some kind, I can't remember if they were yeah, epidemi- two, two epidemiologists. epidemiologists. It came out oh, yesterday right, yeah. on the 19th of September. Yeah, it's a good piece. Yeah. We actually could have discussed that one, but uh, <laughs> it maybe came out a bit too late for us to discuss. But uh, yeah, we may be included in the show notes as well. A bit too fresh, but one of the epidemiologists epidemiologists is arguing very clearly that the policy of lockdown was, um, you know, kind of effectively a remarkable attack on um, the working class in favour of those in favour of the middle class, i.e. those who are more able to work from home and to self-isolate, having more space and uh, resources and capacity to do so. Um, And I think that um, that kind of... uh, that that is being seen by some on the left and indeed Jacobin, which has been more of a supporter of lockdown, is perhaps there's a breakthrough of light um, through the miasma of all the um, all the controversy over lockdown. Yeah, indeed. Oh, um, just, just just one really final point, which is not related to the article, but I did hear, I, I, I learned a little bit about the vaccine uh, in development and it sounds really cool. Basically, it takes, a, uh, takes something similar. I don't, maybe people already know this, it takes like a chimpanzee related kind of flu main bit and then somehow gets the crown of the coronavirus and puts that round the, the, the middle bit. Obviously, not, not being a scientist, I, I can't explain this except gesturing towards amino acids and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's quite cool, actually. And I think, um, yeah, it's it's uh, a, a good use of use of technology. And it just I mean... I think that will be the next, uh, well, maybe when we do the next one of these, we'll be talking about, about vaccines and anti-vaxxers and all this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a combination of uh, a coronavirus out a bit with a chimpanzee flu in a bit. It's quite cool. All right. Uh, thanks for that, George. Now let's move on to the third article. Uh, roll over Beethoven. Um, go for it. Yeah. Um, so this is about Beethoven, the classical music composer, not the not the dog. Just to make that clear. Um, so yeah, I, no one I guess see the dog is that's such an obscure millennial reference. Yeah, that's George, that's very nineties, dude. Okay, well, you two both both knew, so useful for me losers. to say that. So well, speak um, for yourself, Alex. But I am a millennial. Okay. So anyway, why are we racializing Beethoven, uh, which was un, 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 in Unheard um, on the 16th of September by Ralph Leonard. Um, so basically this was, you know, it's a short piece responding to what was essentially turned out to be pretty much a non-story or a fake scandal around a Vox um, podcast um, that basic was, was on, was for the 250th anniversary of um, Ludwig's birth and featured in some of the promo materials 
a sentence that said, uh, for others, women, LGBT plus people, people of color, Beethoven's symphony may be, I'm talking about the fifth, uh, may be predominantly a reminder of classical music's history of exclusion and elitism. And there was lots of things flying back and forth over Twitter, as there always are, on this. And the reason why I wanted to stress this piece is because I basically read it and thought, yeah, that's, you know, finally some sense, like, hits the nail on the head. Um, and the reason for this is that in it, um, the argument is, which I think is essentially entirely correct, is that Beethoven, along with Shakespeare and a whole load of other uh, dead white men, are part of the common cultural treasure of the human race. And it is in no way progressive to allocate certain cultural products to certain classes. In fact, that is reactionary. And the idea that these um, peaks of, of human cultural achievement, um, which give so many people, you know, transcendent moments of various different sorts, um, are to be retained by um, those with cultural capital or by certain classes, that's, that's, that is at heart a very reactionary idea because it says that these you know that some there's something lacking in work it's usually working class but also women lgbt plus people people of color there's something lacking which means that there's there's not the ability to access and understand um for example beethoven's fifth so yeah i just thought it was a good piece which points towards the necessity i mean it's quite maybe quite an obvious point i think actually but the necessity of making again and again the universalist argument even in cultural context like these these things are for everybody. They, you know, let's not have that kind of faux progressivism that says, you know, working class kids can't get Shakespeare, so let's teach them Pigeon English, which is a, a book which is on the syllabus in the UK. I mean, it's that's. I think it's really important to defend these things as as the um, common cultural heritage, and um, not to kind of take any steps backwards and say they're too difficult, or whatever. So yeah, I just thought it was a really good piece, and it was short as well um which is always good in uh, in in a in a piece if it's if it makes the oh, point so, so now you're no coming down now you want now you want short books you want short articles um, because i've been like... very consistent <laughs> on the podcast like i want short books you know why why say something twice you know just say it once drop the mic you know and off you go listen to all of us um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the best way to tell an elitist is uh, if they crit is, is or rather, um, the best way to tell an elitist is if they're criticizing elite culture. Uh, and that applies both to liberal elites as well as to new populist counter elite, be they a kind of Farage or Salvini. Basically, if someone's ranting about elite culture, uh, that means they're probably an elitist. Um or rather, mem a member of an elite, because those are the only people who really um, take aim at uh, at you know, Beethoven for being elitist or, you know, being uh, Shakespeare being incomprehensible or so on. Um, so I think that's, that's very clear. I, I, what struck me about this piece um, by Ralph was recalling what the discourse around lived experience was like 20, maybe not 20, but 10, 15 years ago. Um, because back then there was obviously this question about things being relevant about cultural works needing to talk about or touch on people's lived experience um, uh, so as that so as for them to be able to actually understand it um, nowadays it's kind of degenerated further um, so like before it was just basically we need to make kind of high culture relevant to non-cultural elites now it's like every element of culture needs to be relevant to each micro faction of identity so this book not needs to not only be relevant to a u.s black trans person or a disabled pakistani woman or whatever um, but it also has to be written by a u.s black trans person or a disabled pakistani woman um, for them to for them to um, meet so you actually have the kind of dumbing down debate of 10, 15 years ago has degenerated into one where um, kind of relevance and comprehension and everything has been narrowed down to each little group and, and kind of further uh, hammered away at any notion of universalism and culture. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a shame. It's a diminution. The idea that the author um, can only speak to, to some people and conversely that only some people can understand what an author writes and that there has to be an overlap or an equivalence of, of certain identity um <clears throat> identity categories is yeah and we've talked about this before is, is basically a disavowal of the, the role of literature to transcend um all of these artificial social categories um 
yeah, I mean, and and that's, I guess that's something which, which, you know, everyone's every so often just needs defending. You know, that's, that's the, the point that Gramsci makes point that CLR James makes point that whole, whole load of Marxist universalists on culture would, would, um, would make. And then I guess, and, and you know, at the same time that there's been a history of history of struggle to, to get access to the classics, to get access to the, um, the high peaks of, of, literature and um music and all all this sort of thing and it's and it's too easily dismissed if it's like okay well actually we want a kind of progressive elitism as you know where it's like okay this these cultural products are for working class people and these and and these social categories and these ones are you know let's just leave these to to um, to rich white people with high cultural capital it's yeah it's not progressive at all so why have you given up on climbing those peaks george what do you mean why don't you like try to make these effort to like climb these peaks? I do. I read um, I read uh, Moby Dick and Ulysses when I when I broke my arm badly. Um, so yeah, I I, I think uh, yeah maybe I haven't read read the all of the classics, but who has? It's a project, isn't it? You you, you can't read them all. What you wouldn't have enough time to to read you know to read politics and to to podcast and to watch football and all those other sorts of things. Yeah, it was the football that I was trying to get at, but never mind. Football is one of these peaks. <laughs> when you when you watch Liverpool play, <laughs> if you don't think it's one of the peaks, then you're then I feel, I feel sorry for you. I don't want you to be excluded um, <laughs> from, from, this, happily, from this great and beautiful game. Happily exclude myself. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, anyway, um, as to as to the actual article, I think I, just one other point, it's what it points to what a disaster that democratization of culture has been. And I mean, by democratization of culture, I don't mean access. Um, access is very important, um, whether you want to subsidize theater so people can actually afford to go uh, or, um, you know, or whatever else it might be. And in fact, the Internet has actually been a great step forward in providing access, as the article points out, uh, that, you know, you can have Beethoven on Spotify or get it for free on YouTube. Um, okay, you might not have every single recording that is available, but, you know, that's an amazing entry point to actually start trying to understand um, art music, you know, in, the, in kind of the general terms. Um, but the democratization of culture in the other sense is is really a, a story about the shift from a producerist to consumerist culture, um, where instead of kind of publish and be damned, um, and where, you know, you examine a, a work based on uh, the author and their intentionality, and instead you start focusing on the consumer and, and the reception. So uh, I guess what you have here is another kind of phony democratization. Um, instead of actually raising people up to the level where they're able to grapple with complex and difficult works, um, you start from the point that people are, well, that the consumer really needs to decide. And so you start focus grouping different works to see how it'll be responded to before even producing uh, the thing itself. And at the mm. end of the day, well, that... consumers are stupid. Most people are stupid. And I think we should be absolutely adamant about that. The people get what the people want, as Paul Weller sang. Uh, tastes don't really change of their own accord. It's not, you know, cultural progress doesn't happen because you as a consumer are there saying, well, actually, I want music to sound like such and such. It's because people go out and do it and produce something new. And then that, if it's accessible, actually shifts tastes. Um, so, you know. I'm not sure, Alex. That seems overwrought to me. You've you've undermined your argument by yeah. referencing the jam. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's, but that's no, I, what, but what what I was going to say is that there's there's sort of two sides of the same coin. That it's the failure of access, the failure of really democratizing um, culture in terms of who who consumes it, who produces it, and how it's distributed in society is the, the failure of that project, which then is justified in terms of oh well, people will will find may find it exclusionary anyway, mm -hmm. may find it elitist. Yeah. So it's it's it, it it. I mean, maybe that you're right. Then it it speaks to this kind of the failure of that of that political project to really radically democratize um, culture beyond a kind of very narrow and one sided understanding of 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 when consumer based understanding. Okay, so we'll leave that there. Thank you very much for joining us for this three articles. The next Patreon episode, I believe, is uh, a special one. We've got David Broder in. We're talking about the problems and limitations of anti-fascism today and why we don't live in a we don't live in Weimar Germany. 
basically. Um, so that's a good one to look forward to. Um, and just request, if you uh, haven't reviewed us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast, it's always uh, worth doing that. We'd greatly appreciate it. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Even if they have reviewed us on iTunes, Re- they need to review again, again, review again because they expire. Review early, review often. <laughs> as long as it's a good review. Yeah, <laughs>